0: Welcome to Midweek Liberty. I'm Jay Dylan Proctor. This is a program designed to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, and to offer your mind critical thinking and adventure. And I'm Anthony Allegria. Today we're going to be discussing Anselm, And that's a saint from church history. We'll be doing that. That'll be fun here in a moment. Then we're gonna talk a bit more about nominalism. Now, nominalism is what we talked about in episode 29 of Tools for Liberty. We're gonna go back to that and how our culture is really being ripped apart by people misusing names and thinking that if you can just call something a certain name, it will change the reality. It'll change the narrative. And this is especially a concerning deal in terms of things like the topic of firearms. This is a real big problem, nominalism is. So we'll talk about that in our B segment. And then in our C segment, we will come back to talk about the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Last week, we did a little bit of an introduction to the book of Haggai by looking at King Nebuchadnezzar all the way down to Cyrus the Great. We're going to follow up on that by talking about the seas of Jerusalem. Now, let's go ahead and jump straight into our conversation about Anselm. So often people try to suggest that the church and reason are opposed to one another. You really can only make that case that the church, having faith and being a person of irrationality, are antithetical to one another if you're, to put it nicely, if you're completely unfamiliar with church history. If anyone is familiar with the last hundred years, or excuse me, last thousand years of the church, you will know that there is a long-standing tradition of not only rationality but particularly the movement of scholasticism and how that's affected the world. So we're going to get into all of that in a bit, but let's just go ahead and get right into Anselm, because he's somebody who's attributed as being the, one of the, the early people in scholasticism, but he's a very important character. So let's get right into it. Anselm was an 11th century bishop. Specifically, he was the Bishop of Canterbury, and this is a big deal. He lived from 1033 to 1109. It really is worth pointing out how significant it is that he is the Bishop of Canterbury because that has so much influence with that particular post. And Anselm is known for being not just a theologian, but he's also known as a religious philosopher. Specifically, he made an argument for the existence of God. One of the things that Anselm is very much known for is his ontological argument for the existence of God. Now. The word ontological, I realize that's a a big word and that one can be a bit of a distraction, but it basically just means what is the the nature of God's being? He makes an argument. He makes a claim about the nature of God's being. He presents it for people to to consider. Anselm's argument for the existence of God is both very simple and very complicated. And a lot of times people, when sharing Anselm's argument, they spend a lot of time building up to it, but I'm just going to go straight into it and let you decide for yourself. So Anselm's argument is this. God exists because God is that than which no nothing greater can be thought. And just to reiterate that, God exists because God is that than which nothing greater can be thought. Now, I realize that's something which is a bit, to, a bit much to take in, and you may not be convinced, you may be a little bit hesitant to embrace that, but oftentimes one of the reasons that we're so hesitant to embrace this argument has to do with the, the lenses which we, we view the world with. It should be worth pointing out that Anselm doesn't start with the mentality of trying to convert people out of atheism. He's taking the stance of saying, how can somebody not be a fool in life? Actually, he bases his whole pursuit of the the argument for the existence of God out of Psalm 52, where there's the statement that the fool is the one who doesn't believe, and he says, well, I don't want to be a fool, so I'm going to dedicate my life to not being a fool, and his approach is very different than what we expect a lot of times. So many times people listen to this argument and they, they really take the lenses of 2018 looking into this. And they also take the, the lenses of how atheists, who Anthony, I think, better describes as people who are not just atheists, but they're anti theist how they attack the church and how they want to, to only concede anything that's an empirical argument. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But let's just talk about Anselm for a little bit. One of the starting points that Anselm comes from is, again, not from the conversion of people that are atheists, but instead he's coming from the position of faith and of the position of, of deepening one's faith. He does not create a clever rhetorical device for converting atheists or agnostics, which is what we really would expect. Instead, he begins from actually something from Greek philosophy. He goes back to Plato's forms. He goes back all the way to the Greek philosopher Plato. And he talks quite a bit about the platonic forms because this is so important to really understanding Anselm is understanding the notion of platonic forms. Instead of making really complicated long-term arguments, he simply says, we need to look at the platonic forms. And if you're not familiar with that, it basically boils down to this. Platonic forms are this idea that you can look at multiple objects and tell that they're the same object, not because of the similarities between them, but because they both match an idea. Take, for instance, an ink pen. If I were to say, imagine an ink pen, something would come to your mind. It may be a red ink pen. It may be one of those with a clicky thing on the end, and it may be an ink pen that you pull the, the cap off of. You may even imagine something like a calligraphy pen, or you may imagine something even older, that's something very simple, such as say, a quill. But the idea of a pen, something which uses ink to write, is sort of this transcendent idea. There's not really one pen in the world which is more pen than any of the others. But at the same time, there's a transcendent idea of that. We do not have to come out and prove that there is a connection between a red ink pen and take, for instance, something like a green highlighter any time we want to use one of the two. We can just naturally understand both of these writing instruments which use a form of ink. And while there are wide varieties in different objects in the world, there's a a great similarity between them. Take, for instance, a car, an automobile. You can take something like a, a Jeep, and then you can compare it to something like a corvette and while those things are very different at the same time you can both look at the, you can look at both of them and recognize both of these are means of transportation they're relatively similar they both have four wheels the wheels are made up of tires on rims there's a light in each corner of the vehicle essentially there's a very similar design to both of them even though they're radically different a corvette and a jeep but the basic idea is that there's a platonic form of the automobile out there and while there may not be one car that is the true car there is some great similarities between them. Well, Anselm comes to the idea of God saying, basically this, God is, speaking in Platonic forms, God is the thing which nothing greater can be thought. In other words, he is the Platonic form that no other Platonic form can be greater than. And he's basically saying that if you are to reject the idea of God, then you are to reject the idea of Platonic forms. Now, this can be... A really confusing thing at first and we're not going to go too deep into it we're going to come back to anselm's argument for the existence of god in some future episodes but we do want to talk a bit more about it there is a a monk that was a contemporary of anselm who really came back to to debate with anselm he didn't accept this he didn't like it his name was guanilo guanilo really had three terms that he rejected this on that we're going to discuss today. One of them was that the fool mentioned in Psalm 52 may have had unreliable information. He may have been listening to gossip. He may not know what's going on. And his second point is you can't just define things into existence. And his third point was something about, well, if you say that God is that which there can be nothing greater than, what if I imagine something that is greater? What if I imagine a, a perfect utopian item? Well, we're going to talk about that here in a second, but for now, let's actually go and see what Anselm himself has to say about this. So, Anthony, if you would go ahead and cut us over to Anselm.
1: I am Anselm. I am the Bishop of Canterbury. My argument for the existence of God is this. God is that in which no greater thing can be thought. Now, I understand you may have some hesitation in embracing that. That's all right. We must start with an understanding that there are transcendent things in reality. Reality is not just about a narrative, a paradigm, or a story. But reality is greater than narratives, paradigms, or stories. There are things in reality which can transcend time, space, culture, languages. If we understand that, that if we can look at one thing and that we can understand there is a a form or shadow of it out there, we can understand that there are things which don't just exist within our own mind. God is that in which no greater thing can be thought. It does not originate from within our own minds or from our own perception or worldview. It exists across time, across people, and it is that which no greater thing can be fault. Now, who are you? I'm Gal Nilo, and I'm your worst nightmare, Ansel. How do you know? How do you know that the fool, if you're going to be all up referencing Psalm 52, how do you know that the fool had just been listening to gossip, somebody's sassy lies that they're telling? Oh, thank you. That is a good point to bring up the question of whether or not the Fool may have good information or may be listening to the wrong sources. But the point is this. Reality is more important and more powerful than narratives are. It does not affect the transcendent form if the Fool has bad information. Just because the Fool may not be aware of things doesn't mean that it's not out there in reality. I see where we're going, Anselm. Everything can just be defined into reality, can't it? Everything's just a social construct. Well, I like that. We can just turn everything into whatever narrative we want it to be. You're correct. We cannot define things into existence. But that is not what we are doing. We are discussing things which already exist. We are existing the transcendent reality of God. Okay, Ansel. What if we create a utopia? A paradise? A perfect island where everybody can bring their narrative. And they will live in harmony with one another because they will each embrace their own narrative. And therefore, there will be no differences. We will call it Guantanamo Bay. Ah, yes. The question of the paradise island and your perfect social utopia. Well, to your earlier point, we cannot define things into existence. Reality is more important than narratives. Reality is more transcendent than narratives. And to your point, we are not defining an island into existence. There are already platonic forms which exist against that notion.
0: Now, I should also point out that you're an arrogant piece of- Alright, so do forgive the audio quality on things, especially that at the end, things got a little crazy. and some really didn't take too nicely to Guanilo. Though, I will say this, we are improving the audio, and also, we don't really want to give that bad of a rap to Guanilo. Actually, he brings up some really good points. Historically, I think he really has a valid argument, and again, our, our representation of Guanilo is, is purely for fun purposes. But all the same... Seriously, as we we come to this, a lot of times we are hesitant to embrace Anselm's argument that basically... God is the greatest thing we can imagine, and that it's much more than just a figment of our imagination. It doesn't originate from inside us. That's what is so significant about bringing up the conversation of platonic forms. They are greater than any one of us. They transcend any particular person. They're constants across time, space, cultures, languages. There's something which is universal about this. If we go back to to even ancient Greece, we see that the, the Greeks understood there's some connection between the transcendent good and beauty, and there's a whole another conversation to be had about that, but we're not going to go there for now. We just wanted to present for you today this idea of Anselm's argument for the existence of God. It basically is this. If you believe in platonic forms, if you trust platonic forms to be real, if you trust the fact that you can look at a beanbag and then you can look at a winged back chair and say both of these are sitting things, they're both a chair, then you believe in platonic forms. That's part of reality and to to remove platonic forms from reality basically disables our ability to think. Uh, But the The whole point on this is if you can believe in platonic forms then god is the greatest platonic form Um, and it's not just a form it's not just an abstract thing but it is the greatest thing in which we we can really conceptualize and not just conceptualize but it's the greatest thing in existence so don't get too carried away about this i just want you to chew on it and think about it you can send me your thoughts on anselm's argument for the existence of god one of the things that really throws us off is so often we want Empirical evidence for some reason we've got this dichotomy set up in our world that if you can't provide empirical evidence for the existence of God Then you you have failed This is not the angle that Anselm comes from and It's really foolish of us to think that we actually live in a world where we want empirical evidence for everything We we trust so many things that we do not have empirical evidence for we don't have empirical evidence for all of the workings of consciousness yet We still are perfectly content thinking this idea that if we don't have empirical evidence of every single moment in reality that they don't exist is foolish. You can't even do an experiment unless you are going to, to accept the fact that there are certain terms that the experiment is taking place on. Um, it would be an increasingly movement towards infinity in terms of, of experiments just trying to get to do a conclusive thing on anything because we, we take for granted that certain things are, are given, certain things are, are
2: reliable. Anthony? Yeah, I mean to add to that point, um, the the only thing really that is reliably empirical, the only thing that you can ever truly prove is that you are. Yeah. You can't even really prove uh, any, much about concerning what you're thinking or experiencing. I mean, like, you know, this is obviously shown in the case of the delusional. Yeah. You know, people who are obviously delusional are making observations and they're as yeah. empirical as they could possibly be to them to them but yeah. it is not a, a true observation
0: yeah that's that's something which is really interesting but we're going to leave this conversation for now we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about nominalism in our culture and how it's being ripped apart from just this idea of some of the things that we we poked fun at Guanilo for and we'll be back with that in a minute but for now just enjoy this this nice little commercial <laughs>
2: Today, we make our pilgrimage, not to a place of sophistry or fake news, but to a place where the divine gift of critical thinking is embraced.
0: Alright, well it is the season of Lent, pilgrimages are an important thing, and we'll be discussing about that Friday, the role of pilgrimages and even Anthony of Egypt's great pilgrimage here during the season of Lent. He's actually training for his pilgrimage, he's not done it yet, but we're getting there. All right, so let's talk more about nominalism. We brought this up in Tools for Liberty 29 last week, and basically nominalism boils down to this, and it's, it's a weird word spelled N-O-M-I-N-A-L-I-S-M, nominalism. Nominalism is a big word that's basically a simple concept. It basically boils down to if we name something a certain name, then it becomes that thing. If I name a dog a cat, well, then it's a cat. The reason why people are able to pull this off is because they argue that there is no transcendent reality. There are no platonic forms. There's no abstract reality of a dog. There's no canis lupus specification except the fact that we've called it canis lupus and therefore it is. There's no reality that is beyond one object to another. There's no connection between objects. If you have a set of chairs that are all identical, they're not actually identical to one another. We just call them that they are and therefore they are. From the philosophical standpoint, a lot of people have had different takes on nominalism across the years, but for now, we're just gonna boil it down to the simple fact that if you name something a certain name, then it becomes that thing. This is really a big problem, especially with where our culture is at right now and how we deal with the nature of humanity. Are people naturally evil? Are people naturally good? You see a lot of things happening in our culture. A while back, we talked a bit about the turpins. What was amazing is something which was so obviously evil you had a lot of people who were trying to, to not say that they're evil but they say it was a result of homeschooling it was a, a result of other things going on in the world they were moving away from the behavior of the people to the medium that their behavior manifested upon and here recently we've also had going on in in the US there was a another shooting that happened in a school down in Florida and a lot of times people they again they, they don't talk a lot about the motives of the shooter. They always want to move the the conversation to the medium by which the violence takes place. They want to talk about firearms. And really one of the problems that happens with the the firearm conversation, if you could even call it that in our in the West, is that it really and I and I hate that it boils down to this. And I don't mean to, to put people off when I say this, but a lot of times it does boil down to there are two groups. There are people who actually understand firearms and are familiar with, with how they, they work and they're familiar with accurate statistics and, and the reality of, of how guns involve themselves with crime and how guns are used as self-defense and preventing crime. And then you have, on the other side, people who look at firearms as something that's like a transform it just will magically turn into evil at any given moment, and they really don't know much about them at all. They basically just have an emotional argument. And I really hate that it, it fragments down to that but it basically does. Basically, people who are actually aware of, of legitimate statistics and, and whatnot and and how violence and things work out, they usually fall into the side of, of people need to be able to defend themselves. And again, it's a medium for for use of power, but it's not actually use of power. It's not actually evil itself. It's not actually good or protection itself. It's just a medium and a tool to be used, whether it be used for good or evil. Well, nominalism is a, a big issue with this. And Anthony, I know you had some thoughts on
2: even... Just on nominalism in this topic. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that I was thinking about just now, whenever you were talking about the gun thing, you know, um, to those who are on the other side who don't know as much about the statistics behind it, you know, I really think it's not necessarily the transformer argument, but it's definitely a basis in, you know, they're scared of the possibility of evil assuming that power, you know, and yeah. guns are a powerful medium. But yeah. I mean, even whenever you whenever you reflect on um, the statistics of crime and you know how crimes really are stopped. Guns are a much more powerful medium for good than they are for evil. In, in all reality, but I think that's what they're scared of. They're scared of the opportunity for evil to take power.
0: Well, which also makes you wonder the question: Are they scared of the evil within themselves? Even though they're a lot of times scared to say that people have evil in their humanity. Again, I'm not going to attribute motive to people without without due course of investigation, but uh you know, it's one of these things where it really does boil down to, to a lot of people wanting to make an emotional argument. But my thing is this, we have to, to not argue this on the terms of we have to remove emotional and take this to a logical place. And again, firearms are a medium for things to take place. But again, nominalism comes into this this very deeply because again, you get things like the, the AR-15, um, you compare it to like the Kalashnikov design, people will say, oh, it's an assault rifle. And using the word assault to qualify its existence as a rifle, again, it's its a nominalistic thing where it makes you perceive that it's more powerful or different or, or more deadly. Again, the arguments around this are generally incoherent, whereas in it's different than any other rifle because you put the word assault in front of it, which anybody that's actually involved with firearms knows that the term assault rifle is actually quite loose. It's not actually a, a real thing in and of itself. It's basically just a name that's attributed to certain things. And fairly inconsistently attributed to certain things. A lot of times, you can have a more powerful cartridge on a a rifle that's not one that that uses a magazine or anything like that. And even when you debate how powerful is a cartridge, a lot of times people, and even in recent weeks, they've been making the argument that handguns generally shoot a a slower round that's a lower velocity round, as opposed to that faster, higher velocity round in a rifle. But at the same time, when when it's being shot, if something pierces through you, your likelihood of surviving is a lot greater than is something that's slower, that's going to knock you down and do a lot more internal damage. The ballistics of things gets hairy really quickly, but again, a lot of the people making these arguments have no information that's reliable to them based on ballistics, or they have not consumed and processed any information reliable based on ballistics or anything like that. So novelism is a big problem, and if we're going to eradicate evil in our society, and we actually want to make society a better place,